Let's turn in God's Word this evening again to Romans chapter 6, and we read, I think, for the final time, verses 1 through 14 of Romans chapter 6. You'll find the passage in the Pew Bible, page 942, in the Children's Bible, page 1406, and again, it will be a help, I think, if you're able to follow along in the passage. One final reminder that Paul has been speaking about the greatness of God's grace in Jesus Christ, how while sin has abounded through Adam, grace has superabounded through Jesus Christ, concluding in verse 20 that where sin increased, grace has abounded all the more. The suspicion therefore arising, if the more sin means the more grace, then should we not continue in sin in order that grace may abound and seem to be even more wonderfully gracious? And this is the question in verse 1 that leads to the exposition in verses 2 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self or old man was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is, I think, the fourth of our expositions in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and those of you who have been tracking along and noticing the sermon titles will have come to the conclusion that they are becoming increasingly obscure by the week. 
And you may have wondered, as I've already been asked, what does D slash R mean? And I do intend to tell you before the end of the evening. But the peculiarity of the title reminded me that last week's title, Baptizatu Sum, was one unless I said something I wasn't conscious of, I said absolutely nothing to explain. Where on earth does this title, Baptizatu Sum, come from? Well, actually, it comes, as some of you will know, from Martin Luther. Whenever Martin Luther found himself under spiritual pressure, found himself uh, perhaps struggling against the the lingering influences of sin in his life, and he was deeply conscious of both of these things at many times, he would say to himself, because he was, in fact, a Latin scholar, he was a professor of theology, and everything was in Latin in his day, he would say to himself, baptizatus sum, meaning, remember, Martin, you're a baptized person. Remember what it meant for you to be baptized into Jesus Christ, just as Neil Matthias, on the basis of his children's message tonight, might have said to himself, remember, Neil, you're a married man. Live like a married man, because you are a married man, just as we sometimes say to our teenagers, don't be such a baby. Now, that would be foolish if they were babies. But since they're not babies, it's appropriate for us to say, you're not a baby, so don't be a baby. And what this great sixth chapter of Romans is teaching us as Paul draws upon the experience of baptism that these Roman Christians had, is this great sense that their baptism had been a naming ceremony, just as, in a sense, marriage is a naming ceremony, so that just as at the end of our wedding services the minister will say to the congregation, I have the privilege to present to you for the first time Mr. and Mrs. X, and her name has been changed. She now belongs to this man. Everything that belongs to that man has been pledged to her. So, Paul is saying to these Roman Christians, don't you understand that you are in the same position, that by baptism you have been united to Jesus Christ, that all that He has done for you in your stead is now yours? You are no longer under the dominion of sin. You are under the reign of grace. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. So, how can you possibly think about simply going on in the old way and continuing to live in sin? Sometimes, of course, people find this reference to baptism a little strange and rather strongly worded. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death and share in His resurrection? Does that really happen? Well, let me ask you some counter-questions. 
Which do you think would be the most New Testament way of answering the question, when did you become a Christian? Oh, you might say, I became a Christian when I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade, or I became a Christian when I went forward listening to the preaching of John Guest, as I suspect some of you may well have done. Or, I became a Christian when I was baptized. Imagine yourself, you are, you are a channel 19 or 40, whatever it is, or 10 reporter, and, and you, you are looking for people the day after the day of Pentecost. And you say to them, so you are a Christian now. Yes, I'm a Christian. There are hundreds of us. Actually, there are already thousands of us. When did you become a Christian? They say, didn't you know what happened yesterday? Weren't you there? Didn't you see? I became a Christian yesterday when I was baptized. Now, it shouldn't be too difficult for us to understand that, because when somebody answers the question, when did you become a Christian? by saying, when I went forward at a Billy Graham campaign, they're not telling you how they became a Christian. You don't become a Christian by physically getting up out of your seat and walking to the front of a meeting. You become a Christian by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ but it may be in your experience that that is so connected to one particular event that when you're asked the question, when did you become a Christian? And you see, if you'd ask these New Testament Christians, when did you become a Christian? So many of them would have said, I became a Christian on the day in which I was baptized. Baptism and becoming a Christian and entering into this glorious union with Jesus Christ that Neil was speaking to the children about were, as it were, simultaneous realities for them. They heard the gospel and they were baptized. And so Paul is, in essence, saying, don't you understand what it actually means to be a Christian? Yes, I know you thought that you were, being, you were coming and trusting in Jesus because you, you wanted your sins forgiven, and your sins have been forgiven. But, oh, he says, there's so much more. Because in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has united you to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you now share His name so that the most fundamental thing you can possibly say about yourself when somebody asks you who you are, is, I am a Christian. I am Christ's one. And it's the question of chapter 6, verse 1, that gives Paul the opportunity to, as it were, delve a little into this, not quite immerse himself in it, but to delve into this in a marvelous way. And you'll notice here, I think this is, this is worth us considering, that the order in which Paul speaks is determined by the question that Paul has been asked. Our responses often are. But the logic of Paul's thinking 
is not the same as the order of His speaking. So, let's try and be very clear on the logic of Paul's thinking, because it begins with what Jesus Christ has done. Do you notice he speaks about this in verse 8? Christ died to sin and has been raised into newness of life. When Christ died on the cross, He not only died for our sins, bearing our judgment, but Paul says He died to sin. He came in death into the dominion, into the realm, into the kingdom of sin, and in the power of His resurrection. He broke the power of sin in His death for sin, and in His resurrection He was, as it were, liberated from that reign of sin that kept Him down in death. It was not possible for death to hold Him because He broke the power of sin. And now, says the New Testament, He lives forever in the service of His heavenly Father. Now, says Paul, that's the foundation. But then, go back to verses 3 and 4. When you became a Christian, you were united to Jesus Christ. The only Christ that it's possible for you to have been united to is the Christ who has died to sin and been raised into newness of life. And therefore, says Paul, when you came into union and communion with Jesus Christ, right from the very beginning of your Christian life, you were, you were planted together with Him, and you are growing together with Him in His death to sin and His resurrection to newness of life. Therefore, verses 1 and 2, if you have died to sin with Christ and been raised into newness of life, it is unthinkable that you would go on living in sin. You see what he's saying? You don't go on living in sin because you're the kind of person who has died to the dominion of sin and been delivered from the dominion of sin. It would be illogical. It would be contradictory to who you are as a Christian. Now, we have reminded ourselves on several occasions, and we need to keep reminding ourselves, Paul is not saying the presence of sin has been banished from our lives any more than he's saying the presence of sin has been banished from the world. But he is saying to us, you have a new citizenship in a new kingdom in which Jesus Christ reigns, and therefore you don't belong to that old kingdom no matter how many messages it may send you, no matter how often like being offered credit cards, there may be these letters spat out at you by the ungodly world. You still belong to us. Come and join us. Paul is saying you don't belong to that world. If I can put it this way, he's saying, get that into your heads, Roman Christians. You don't belong to that world. Therefore, don't let that world confuse your thinking. Don't let that world draw your affections. Don't let that world snarl up your will, but live as those 
who have died to the power of sin, its dominion in Jesus Christ, and have been raised into newness of life. And the way we've put this is that, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, Paul gives us his proposition. We've died to sin and been raised to newness of life. Verses 3 through 10, he gives us the exposition of that. He puts it under the microscope. Verse 11, he says, now there is a consideration that needs to be crystal clear in your mind. Verse 11, you must think about yourself in a certain way. And then in verses 12 through 14, there is the personal application, the proposition, the exposition, the consideration, and the application. Now, look back again just for a moment at what he says in verses 6 and 7, because here he's, he's putting what has happened to me as a Christian under the microscope. I see, Paul, I've died to sin, and I've been raised to newness of life in Christ, but just, just help me grasp this a little more. Well, he says, it's like this. The old man the man you used to be, the woman you used to be when you were united to Adam, what you were in that former state, you are no longer. Because you're united to Christ, all that you were in Adam, the old man, has died with Christ. And now you're a new person who has been raised up with Christ. And the result of dying with Christ, he says, we know that our old self or our old man was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin, that is, I think he's saying, so that this body that has been in the dominion of sin and under the reign of sin might be set free from that dominion. Yes, I will to the end of my life carry in my body indications that I once belonged to the kingdom of sin. I will have to struggle with that as an adopted child may have to struggle with his or her identity, or somebody who comes from a foreign country may have to struggle with the English language all their days. That may be a lifelong struggle but I need to understand that since all that I used to be in Adam has been crucified with Christ, this body, not just some spiritual part of me, but my whole being, and we are all in this room, are we not physical beings, that this body of mine might no longer be fruitful soil for sin to grow its ugly weeds, but soil in which grace may grow, so that in my life the fruit of the Spirit is produced, so that, as he says, we are no longer enslaved to sin. This is a great key to all bondage. I need to understand what it is that Christ has done for me and the riches that Christ shares with me, and the transformation that Christ makes of me, that I'm not struggling to be free, 
but that Christ has set me free, and therefore I'm struggling as a free person to bring that freedom to bear upon every aspect of my life. And sometimes it's jolly hard work to do that. I have to fight against the world and the flesh and the devil. But I don't do that as somebody who is already pinioned down by the king of darkness, but as somebody who has only one Lord and Master, my Lord Jesus Christ. And when I understand that, you see, it puts a different perspective on the way I live. And at least for the Apostle Paul and for the Lord Jesus, that perspective is in many senses all-important. And this is why he comes on at the end of this passage to the three things I want you to notice together this evening. I can summarize them in three words. In response to all this, Paul says, think clearly. Second, resist boldly. And thirdly, yield joyfully. Think clearly, resist boldly, and yield joyfully. Think clearly, verse 11. That is about yourself. So, he says, here is the conclusion of the matter. You, Christian, Christian, you, this is not an option for you. This is not an alternative given to you. This is not one form of thinking about the Christian life. This is your responsibility, says Paul. You must. Not, would you like to? Not, it would be good for you if. Not, I wonder if you could be so gracious as perhaps to consider this option I'm pressing before you. No, you must. This is a spiritual responsibility. You must learn, he says, to consider yourself, to think of yourself in this way as somebody who in Christ has died to sin and in Christ has been raised to newness of life. Now, we have said on more than one occasion, this is not wishful thinking. This is spiritual accountancy. He uses the language of accountancy. What does the accountant do? The accountant comes to you, and he's added up the numbers, and he says, you owe the IRS so much. And you say, I don't, I don't feel that way. I actually feel as though I've done pretty well. No, no, he says, you don't understand. I'm not asking you how you feel. Paying your taxes is not a physical condition. I'm telling you the reality of the situation. And it's dangerous for you to ignore the reality of the situation. So I may say, this is actually, this is quite a difficult chapter. I think I'll ignore that. No, no, says Paul. Ignore that, and you will find yourself in spiritual danger. You'll never be able to understand how to live the Christian life in a New Testament kind of way. So he says, you must learn to, to 
consider yourself dead to sin. Now, listen, that's different from hearing a sermon that tells you if you're a Christian, you've died to sin and been raised in newness of life. It is, isn't it? That's something that will take each of us a different length of time, different struggles to take in so that it becomes part of our mindset. That's why we've spent a little time on this chapter, although, as I said last week, not the 14 hours Martin Lloyd-Jones spent on it. Back to him in a minute. So, he says, this is the first thing. Learn to think clearly about yourself. You say, I don't feel this way about yourself. I, I I don't. I don't feel I'm dead to sin. My dear friend, that is utterly irrelevant utterly irrelevant. So long as you live your life on how you feel about yourself, you will be a disaster in this world, and you'll be a disaster in this world. In the Bible, our feelings always need to be drawn and transformed by what the Scripture says is true of us. And this is what God in His gospel says is true of me. And when it dawns on me, I understand why Paul says to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, it's like entering a new creation. And so, the first thing I need to do, and I need to keep learning to do it, and I may need to work very hard until it's clear in my mind is to realize that if I'm a Christian, I need to think of myself this way. I'm no longer in Adam. I'm no longer under the dominion of sin. I'm in Christ. The dominion of sin is broken. That's who I am. Now, you see, unless you do that, what follows will seem to you either to be moralistic advice or an impossibility. Because the second thing Paul tells us to do, think clearly about yourself, resist firmly the old lifestyle, verses 12 through 13. Now, notice the logic of what he says. He comes here in verse 12, and he says, let not sin therefore reign. You see, do you feel the power of this? Because you understand that you're a new creature in Jesus Christ, Paul is now able to load onto your life every single imperative that would destroy you apart from this foundation. He says, it's because this is true. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't, he says, present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't even think about it. I had a friend, that, uh, whenever we drove anywhere in Philadelphia, if anyone was thinking of coming out from the side and moving into the traffic in front of him, he would press his foot on the accelerator and he would mumble, don't even think about it. Now, that's a terrible way to drive, but it's a great way to live the Christian life, isn't it? Don't even think about it, because, you see, it all begins here. It's all going to be lodged in here to draw me away from Jesus Christ, 
And Paul is saying, now you see, this is how the gospel works. When there is an ocean of grace underneath your life, then it's safe for the gospel to give you the most rigorous exhortations. And it's interesting that Paul uses language here that seems to me, at least in part, to be drawn from a military setting. He says to these Roman Christians, don't present your members, that is, the members of your body, to sin, as the English Standard Version has it, instruments, the word is hopla, and it might be translated weapons. He is saying, you're, you're in a new kingdom altogether, but there's a war going on. The kingdom of darkness is seeking to destroy the kingdom of light, and the forces are ranged against you. So, he says, don't offer the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness in this war, but rather offer them, he says, to the Lord. Now, I wonder if you've noticed when Paul moves from speaking about grace to giving us these strong commands to holiness, he usually begins with a negative. You see that here, don't you? If you read on to Romans 13, 12, he does the same thing. He does the same thing in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4. does the same thing in Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared in order to teach us to say no to sin. And then he goes on to the positives now. What do you think about this? No to all sin. That's, that's what you're to do. I'm no longer under the dominion of sin, and therefore I say no to all sin. Well, you might say. There he goes again, the Apostle Paul. He never really got rid of that rigorous Phariseeism, did he? Well, I think of a vague memory that the Lord Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, the best thing to do is cut it off. He could be negative too, couldn't he? And you see, it's only safe for Paul to see these negative things so strongly to us, because he says, you do understand that there is such a glorious transformation taking place in your life, that you belong to this new kingdom where throwing off the old is the most appropriate thing you could possibly do. I am afraid, and I speak for myself because I'm part of this generation as you are, that we have become very soft as Christians. In fact, it's my experience that many people, when they read this kind of thing, begin to shake nervously and say, oh, this is all, this is all so negative, and, and we would be in danger of being legalistic if we listened to this kind of thing. We couldn't be more wrong. As I said last time, somebody said to me they'd been reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on Romans chapter 6. I have the volume. There are, let me tell you, no less than 22 sermons. These are all abridgments. So, they were all an hour long. I picked it up, and 
I thought, I wonder what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says about this. Now, you understand, Dr. Lloyd-Jones was an extraordinarily distinguished young cardiologist. He was the assistant to the king's physician as a man, I think, in his late twenties, then was called into the gospel ministry. Listen to what he says about this. He says, here we are, we are struggling and striving in the Christian life, we are unhappy, and suddenly I look at an advertisement which says, come to the clinic. He says, I saw this advertisement. What you need, we are told, is to come to the clinic, to the spiritual hospital, and here your sickness and your illness can be dealt with. Of course, there is an aspect to the Christian church that we get healing in Jesus Christ to our minds and to our spirits, but but this is, the, this is the therapeutic world that he's speaking about. I'm, I'm, I'm needing somebody. I, what I actually need is a nice doctor. I need a nice doctor spiritually. And says Martin Lloyd-Jones, I do not find a doctor here. He says, what do I find? He says, I find a barracks. Some of you men in the military, that's an English word for Fort Jackson. He says, that's what I find. Not a hospital, but a military center. What do I need? What do I find? I do not find a doctor here. What we all need is not a doctor, but a sergeant major. I think that's a drill sergeant. That's a drill sergeant. The colonel has told me that's a drill sergeant. Because you see, this is a battle against sin. And here we are, he says, slouching about the parade ground, feeling our own pulses, feeling miserable, talking about our weakness. So we say, I need a doctor. I need to go to the clinic. I need to see the medical officer. But that is not right. What you need is to listen to the voice of the drill sergeant who is there shouting the commands of God to you. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Oh, it's so difficult for me. You don't understand my background. You don't realize all the things that have gone on. Yes, 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 yes. The man knew all this. Paul knew all this. He was glad to have his friend Luke traveling around with him. But it doesn't change one whit the command of God, which is battle against the sin. Don't give the members of your body into the army of sin. I didn't ask permission, but it's too late now. Remember a couple of years ago when David Kent went up to the Coast Guard Academy? Some of you saw the video on television of David getting off the bus. And there is our David getting off the bus. He takes two steps off the bus, and there's somebody right there in his face shouting and shouting and shouting, command after command after command after command. Now, if I'd been David, I would have said, when's the next bus home to Columbia? <laughs> but you see, he stood there and took it like a man. Why? Because he was a cadet. That's who he was. And he was being installed into his cadetship. Be what you have become. Now, you see, that's the same 
I go to the books that tell me all I need is a, a little this and a little that. Paul is saying, avoid those books like the plague. Listen to what God is saying. Listen to what the Christ-anointed apostles are saying. Resist, resist, resist. Yes, you may be struggling. Yes, you may have all kinds of dispositions that have been shaped by the culture. Everybody's doing it. My dear young friends, don't go to the Apostle Paul and say, it's so difficult because everybody else is doing it. Because what he's going to say to you is, are you Christ's? Then don't yield your members to unrighteousness if you're Christ's. Why? Because you belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He has purchased every molecule in your body at the cost of His precious blood. He's united you to Himself, and you share in the power of His death to sin and His resurrection to newness of life. Now, if I don't grasp that, then all this seems like hard talk telling me that I need to strive to be better when in fact it's gospel talk teaching me how to live the Christian life. I don't know why, but into my mind when I was thinking about this towards the end of the week came that song from way back when, Hello, Mother. Hello, Father. Some of you know it. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining, and they say that we'll have fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joyce Fivey. He developed poisoned ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner? He got Tom in poisoning last night after dinner. All the counselors hate the waiters in the lake as alligators, and the head coach wants no sissies, so he reads to us from something called Ulysses. No, I don't want this should scare you, but my bunkmate has malaria. You remember Jeffrey Hardy? They're about to organize a search party. Take me home, oh mother, father. Take me home. I hate Granada. Don't leave me out in the forest where I might get eaten by a bear. That doesn't rhyme. <laughs> Take me home. I promise that I will not make noise or mess the house with other boys. Oh, please don't make me stay. I've been here one whole day. Dearest father, darling mother, how's my precious little brother? Let me come home if you miss me. I would even let Aunt Bertha hug and kiss me. And then mercifully, wait a minute, it stopped hailing. Guys are swimming, guys are sailing, playing baseball. Gee, that's better. Mother, father, kindly disregard this letter. <laughs> My friends, the Christian life is not a holiday camp. It's not. We're in His army. We're citizens in His kingdom. We're fighting the greatest battle there has ever been in our lives in order that our lives might be given over wholly to Jesus Christ, that His 
glory might be seen in the world. We are Christians so that it will be clear to the world in which we live that Christians really are different people. And then you notice, thirdly, he balances this, and when I've said this, we're almost done. We need to think clearly about ourselves. We need to resist firmly the old lifestyle and all its allurements. And then he says, thirdly, we need to yield joyfully in consecration to the Lord. Lord, if this is who I am, then I will be entirely yours. And you notice what he says, sin once reigned in this mortal body, had control, sometimes disguised from others, sometimes we disguised it or denied it to ourselves, but sin reigned. But now grace reigns. So, what do you do? You give your body to the Lord. You say to the Lord Jesus, this mind, it is yours. Fill it with your truth and grace. These eyes, they are yours. Let them look on nothing that will cause you pain. These ears, they are yours, and through them I wish to hear only your voice speaking to me in your word and obey. This mouth is yours. I desire to speak only that which is pleasing to you. This heart is yours. I long that in every beat it takes, it might enable me to live for Jesus Christ. These hands are yours. Enable me to use them for your glory. These feet are yours. Grant that they may be kept in your way, that I always may follow you and be your disciple. What else can you do? especially if you were at the Lord's Supper at the morning service and at the end sang, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. But do you notice I use two different adverbs? Resist firmly, yield joyfully. Where does the joy come from? Well, from Paul's closing words, you are not under law. You're not held down by law. You're not trying to please law. Law can never effect in your life what it commands for your life. Do you understand that? The law does not have the power to effect in your life what it commands for your life. But the glory of the gospel is that it gives what it commands. And so, I'm able to give myself joyfully to the Lord Jesus Christ, because grace upon grace upon grace upon grace flows down into my life. I almost forgot to tell you what the sermon title means. Actually, it's borrowed from my mentor as a student, William Still, who, as I've told you before, was one of those preachers who would range all over the place. Sometimes it would be difficult to follow where he was going as he went from Dan to Beersheba and backwards sometimes. 
in a service, but He would often come to this, that since we've been united to Christ in His death and resurrection, a whole new world order has opened to us. And I remember He told me one day, He showed it to me one day in His notes. He says, you know, I say this so often that when I write it in my notes, I just write D slash R. Actually, he learned that from somebody else. Paul. Do you notice that? In verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 4, just as Christ was raised, so we might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, we've been united with Him in a death like His. We'll be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we will live with Christ. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised will never die again. The death He died, He died to sin. The life He lives, He lives to God. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And verse 13, do not present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You know, you can't take this in in one sermon. Can't take it in in four sermons. Can't take it in in four years. Maybe can't take it in in 40 years. We need to keep coming back to the mirror of God's Word. And when we see all that the gospel has done to transform us, you see, at last we begin to hold up our heads and we say, I'm somebody who has died to sin's dominion and been brought to newness of life in Jesus Christ. How should such as I am yield to sin? And so, we begin the way that leads to glory. I may have told you before, and with this I honestly end, that when I was a little boy, I used to listen to a radio program between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. It was called Uncle Mac's Request Show. The host, he wasn't a DJ, this was the 1950s, the host was a man called Derek McCulloch, and he was known as Uncle Mac. And he always used to end the program with one of two songs from the Danny Kaye movie on Hans Christian Andersen's life. Either it was the king is in the altogether, the altogether, the altogether, or it was the one about the ugly duckling. I'm just an ugly duckling. Until one day as the ugly duckling looked into the river in which it swam, it discovered it wasn't an ugly duckling, and in near ecstasy begins to sing, as I shall not do. I'm not, a, I'm not an ugly duckling. I'm a swan. I'm a swan. 
I'm a swan. Now, that's what Paul is saying. You're not somebody. If you're Christ, you are not any longer under the dominion of sin. You're a new man, a new woman in Jesus Christ. Now, go and do it. This is where I should have the Nike t-shirt, isn't it? (laughs) Just do it. But you see, if you're not united to Christ, you can't do it. And so the first thing is to be Christ's. Heavenly Father, what a world Your Word brings us into. How sometimes it comes to us with fingers like a therapist's that work so gently and then with such power exposes pain or frailty, weakness, lack of true godly exercise. We pray that by Your Word You would work on our minds, on our affections, on our wills, on our whole being, that we may be joyfully Jesus Christ. Help us to take steps this week that this may be realized in our lives. This we pray for the honor of Your name, the blessing of our lives, the joy of our fellowship and our witness in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.